Right, let's see how brain dead we are at the end of this. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's April 2022 and your eyes are probably watering, either from the hay fever or the cost of putting fuel in your car. We're here to help you get through it all with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, thank you for that introduction. It's good to be here. Um, we've got an audience today. We've got two dogs listening in, Buddy and Mickey, so they're keenly listening for all the film content we're about to dissect. And, and when I you they're asleep on the rug. Yeah, what, but if they do start walking around and you hear their um, their clicking on the, on the floor, we'll pretend that's a Hans Zimmer uh, like uh, soundtrack sound effect to make it more cinematic. Or they're on their way to slap a comedian. <laughs> yeah. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called DoubleReelPodcast, and a DoubleReelPodcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereel, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 24. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we tried to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're looking at the 1953 French suspense classic, The Wages of Fear. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Battle Royale. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 24, we're discussing the efforts of Indian director Mira Nair to adapt the epic best-selling book Shantaram. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month discusses Sorcerer, the 1977 remake of this month's classic film Wages of Fear. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 24, we're going to unpack the Academy Awards. Winners, losers, snubs, and our verdict on award season. But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the Podcast Magazine Letters page. Had a couple of messages about last episode's features. Uh, Muck said about our hidden gem, you were never really here. It was brutal but brilliant. I've never seen anything like it. And Tony, friend of the pod, responded to our big conversation topic about action films. Enjoyed the feature as always. I have Dread and The Hunt near my... A list of top 21st uh, century action films. Also The Purge, now I think about it. Grant says, I love Sorcerer. It's an awesome movie, talking about our remake Hate Watch. Uh, Sarah likes it as well. On the other hand, Rick says, I prefer The Wages of Fear, the original and best and a true masterpiece. Jeroen comments on our big conversation topic. Uh, no one gives a fuck about the Oscars, he says. Well, we've tried to make our Oscars chat as lively as possible, so we hope you'll stick with us for real too. <laughs> Joe gets in touch about our Cuba country for the month and says Spartacus is an amazing film. I love Spartacus and so does my wife. 
We got a few messages like that. <laughs> Solfin writes in about our hidden gem, Battle Royale. Quentin Tarantino called it the best film made between 2000 and 2010, better than any films he directed that decade, which uh, is a big, is. big, big compliment, but that's not his best decade. Uh, and Matt comments on X, a new film we'll be discussing in the roundup. I hated X. It was just a bad film. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set ourselves in 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just like to promote our other podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Uh, this is where we talk about uh, other other topics than film in a kind of offbeat way. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Verses, The French Dead Woman, is out now. So, just before we get into our regular, you know, content that we talk about for the roundup, I just wanted to uh, just note this is our twenty fourth episode, which means that once this goes out, we will have completed two years worth of podcasts since Double Rule first started, which is a Holy bit of a shit. milestone. Uh, sort of like two full, you know, uh, you know, years of you know, you know, monthly content. Uh, there's been a couple of bonus things as well, uh, but on the whole, it is about the main features. Um, we have come a very long way since the first episode. Uh, we didn't even have James in the, the my son in the first episode. It was just me sitting in the worst moment of lockdown, jabbering away. Uh, I didn't even have uh, a proper microphone, uh, so the sound is not great. I was still learning how to speak on a microphone and how to kind of structure all the features. So it's a very different from what we see now. Um, I would hope that if people listen to that episode first, they would bear with us and say that it gets better. If you're listening to our regular latest episodes and like how you know slick everything is, uh, you might want to dip into the archive and listen to some old ones. But we kind of we kind of hit our straps around episode seven or eight, I would say, probably episode eight, because episode seven there was that that terrible incident with fucking Zencaster. But anyway, um, <laughs> on on episode one, I mean, the, the format sort of improved from this. You know, J- James first joined in, in episode two when we did the big conversation together. I very quickly realised that the best stuff was when we were just talk, chatting to each other. So we restructured it so that James was coasting everything, and everything kind of you know you know hit its stride then. Um, but there is some really good good stuff in the first episode. We talked about a couple of, well, a new film, Extraction, because it came out on streaming. Our first classic was Lady Vengeance. Our first hidden gem was Blowout, which is an amazing film, one of the best films of all time. We did John Carpenter's Firestarter for the um, one that got away, which is a great story. I think we be- we do it better now when it's the two of us, but it is still a great story. And the remake Hate Watch was Total Recall, which I give the kicking it thoroughly deserves. We didn't have any big conversation that time, so it was just that kind of hour and 20 minutes. Um, but, I mean, there is some good content on there, and everyone should watch Blowout. So even if you don't listen to the first episode, um, go out and watch Blowout. It's definitely worth it. Um, now, that's enough patting on the back. Um, the first thing we always talk about in the roundup is the news. So have any news stories caught your eye lately, mate? Um, I feel like someone died. I can't remember who it was, but did someone die? There's a guy called Gilbert Gottfried who died. He was that a 67-year-old yeah. comedian who did some quite memorable little cameo parts in films. The one I remember him best for was he plays this sleazy accountant in Beverly Hills Cop 2 who they have to deal with a 
like halfway through a car chase, one of Tony Scott's uh, big car chase set pieces. And uh, you'd recognize him if you saw him. He had this kind of, kind of whiny voice and his eyes were always half closed, but he's a very funny guy. And sort of one of those little kind of, um, you know, one of those uh, supporting players who holds up the whole industry. And it is sorry to see him go. Um, in other news, I can't. I feel like I'm really missing something, but I can't remember. Oh, Netflix! That was the big news. Yeah, tell us about Netflix. So Netflix, um, have suffered cat not catastrophic, but they've lost a lot of money recently because of Russia. But they've also kind of hinted that they're going to crack down on account sharing. Yeah. So if you've got an account in your household, but you've also given the password to your mum in another household, and you've given the password to your sister in another household, uh, Netflix are going to are they clamping down on it or are they just going to charge you more? Uh, I don't know exactly what they're going to do. They've just kind of hinted at it. Um, I think their problem is is that they've... Um, there hasn't been a massive Netflix series, a massive event series on the TV series side. Um, there's been some good films coming out, but there was a time when you would go, right, I'm going to, I'm going to watch such and such. It's on Netflix. It's the, you know, it's the next Breaking yeah. Bad or it's the next whatever. And it was real event, you know, viewing, and everyone was binging on it, and everyone was talking about it. I don't think they've got as many of that at the moment coming out, um, and obviously that's a more crowded space now that uh, Disney Plus is doing all of its um, Marvel series and its Star Wars series. So I think I think they're struggling with that. I mean, personally, I think Netflix should um, chance their arm and make a bit more money in the, uh, at the cinema. They're making they're spending a fucking ton of money on these big films, and they're not showing them in cinemas. But uh, you know they um, they obviously measure their success on uh, on subscription revenue, so that's obviously what's driving this, right? It's quite greedy, though, isn't it? Because they have a hundred how many odd million, like a hundred and ten, hundred and twenty million subscribers a month, and if they're all paying around ten dollars, they're making you know well over a billion a month. Um, yeah, so they're I, just trying to kind of like capitalize on every single person that's watching Netflix. But you know, what's the difference between me giving my account to four different people in four different households or just getting all four of those people in the same household to watch it. You yeah. know what I mean? Or them not watching it. <laughs> yeah. Watching the thing they want to watch for £2.50 because they have to rent it on another uh, on another platform. Yeah. The whole, the whole kind of subscription platform is a little bit of a challenge when you think that if you want... Well, I'm watching everything. No one's got the right to watch everything. But, you know, if you've got a relatively broad set of tastes... You know, you sometimes look at it and go, well, to watch all these things I'm interested in this month, I would need to have a subscription to Apple TV+, Netflix, Disney+, Amazon Prime. Uh, there's probably a couple of others that, you know, like a Sky Movie subscription, whatever it is. It's just too much. Um, so, I th- you know, it, it, it could be that maybe they'd be better off saying for some of their stuff, they'll charge you, you know, because I mean, I think Amazon does all right with this, where they say, I know Amazon's always an add-on to your Prime membership. But, you know, they sometimes say, look, if you want to watch this latest film, it's two ninety nine, two ninety nine to rent. It's like, okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so it's look, it's their call. It, these, you know, you know what these things are like. They're making enough money. They're just not making as, as much money as they were. And that always makes people ask questions in the boardroom. So there you go. They could always, like, spend less money on my stupid Michael Bay films. That probably saved them a quarter of a billion pounds a year. <laughs> Um, I've got a couple of things. Obviously, we don't want to talk too much about the Will Smith incident because I think it's been done quite heavily. And in our Oscars chat, we are going to talk about people who won awards and stuff like that. But it is noted that Will Smith has been suspended or banned or whatever from the Academy uh, for 10 years. 
So he can't attend any academy events. He won't be handing out the Best Actress Award next year, which is what the you know Best Actor winner from the previous year customary does. Probably some sort of suspension was about right for what he did. But, you know, I think the best thing about this now is everyone can draw a line under it now, you know? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it in the Oscars chat. Just let it be known that I'm on Chris Rock's side and Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith are a pair of cunts. Um, and we want to focus on who won and the sort of surprise winners and that that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah I'm glad think, we've kind of yeah. I'm glad we've kind of like prefaced. Yeah, it can draw a line under it. Now. Yeah. So let's crack into it. Slight, um, quite sad news is that Bruce Willis has announced his retirement from that acting was the big news. Um, that due was to the big an news. aphasia diagnosis. And I think like a lot of people, I think the Wikipedia page of aphasia has been very busy lately because I think we all Googled it to work out what it was. It's yeah. a, uh, which I read, it's a brain disorder or some sort of disorder in a similar sort of category as dementia where the sufferer struggles to comprehend speech and language. Uh, obviously things like learning your lines and knowing when it's your turn to speak and stuff like that, and you know, general memory and, uh, and such like these are quite important to an actor. Um, the main causes for getting this are a stroke and head trauma. I've, you know, you know, without being Bruce Willis's personal physician, no one will know why he's got this and how it happened. But uh, obviously, his challenge now is that he's uh, uh, he's struggling with the uh, uh, with the you know the, the the technical steps of of acting. So this is. This is it for Bruce Willis, which is, you know, I think he's he had an incredible career up to about kind of maybe five, ten years ago. It's kind of slowed down since then. But obviously, he, he was an absolutely massive star for a long time. Yeah, um, I remember um, Bruce Willis got a bit of a, a, like a pounding once, like a bit of a grilling because he seemed quite snarky in interviews. Yeah. And he seemed like he, he, kind of, he would kind of lean with one ear and try and pick up what the person was saying. And his daughter just said, "No, he's 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 either hard of hearing, but she basically tried to like kind of say he's not being an arsehole. He's just trying to struggle with it." And yeah, then, this was a few years ago, and then now it's you know yeah, a, like a few things are sort of falling into place now, aren't they? So how does that how does that work? So does that mean in like a few years he's just not going to be able to talk, read, or understand anything? I I, I honestly don't know. I don't know what the typical prognosis is, but it's obviously enough that right, as of now he's you know he's because he, he, he's made a lot of films lately, which suggests that maybe he was kind of just doing as many as he could before he kind of finished. Um, yeah. And it's obviously it's a bit of a struggle. Apparently he's had an earpiece, you know, to feed him his lines. You know, someone kind of giving him a signal to say it's your turn to speak now. Walk over here. It's kind of challenging. And some of the film roles he's done lately, they were El Cheapo films because it meant he could just do his bit in in like three days. Okay. Uh, I don't know how worse it gets. Um, okay. The, I, just probably rightly, I think, well, definitely rightly, the Razzies, the awards for uh, the Golden Raspberry Awards for bad, you know, achievement in film, they withdrew his award category. They had to do it retrospectively because they'd already done it after this after this announcement. But they've withdrawn his category for this year, which was all about best worst Bruce Willis performance in the film, because obviously that's uh, rather harsh given the circumstances. Yeah. Um, Any other news stories catch your eye? Um. Not necessarily stories, but that Nick Cage film is out, and apparently it's incredible. Yeah, um, probably the, the the most the thing that made me most excited about it was that Peter Bradshaw and The Guardian gave it a bad review, which means it must be brilliant. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, this is very close to um, a publication date of the episode. Normally, we record a little bit further ahead, uh, but this is a lot nearer, so it's actually not more than a few days before I'm going to try and get out to watch it. I don't know about you, but it's actually out today. So okay. people will be watching this soon, and we are we are gonna um, we're gonna make efforts to go and see this so that we can talk about it in the I next episode. Don't know when we'll get a minute. 
to watch that because I'm working tomorrow, looking after dogs and that on Sunday. So hopefully it's still yeah, out it, the weekend. I'm, after. Sh- I'm sure it's going to be out for a little while. They're promoting okay. this quite quite heavily, so fingers crossed. Um, it is weird now, isn't it? Sometimes you could rely on a film to be out for a while and, and, and be a bit more confident that you'll catch it. But I think you will. I think you'll have time. Cool. Um, other a, a couple of quick things. Um, Andy Serkis uh, has been given the green light to make his adaptation of Animal Farm, the George Orwell classic. Okay. Which will presumably be a, uh, a the use of kind of CG and other kind of graphics to uh, animate the animals. Is using... he playing every animal? I don't know because he's he's his motion capture thing that he does. He he's he recruited a lot of actors for the Planet of the Apes films that he did, who all joined in with him in the motion capture approach. So I imagine he'll have a cast of actors, different ones playing different animals. Yeah, I suppose it's different playing. You know, he's been playing by is it bipedal. Um, bipedal, yeah, bipeds, those kind of. So I suppose it's different when you're playing pigs and horses and all that kind of thing. But well, no, it's a very good book, and it'll be a very. It, they get it right. I'm not too sure because Andy Serkis did do an ad- adaptation of the Jungle Book called Mowgli round about the time that Disney did their live action version. Yeah, of it. it got lost in the wash a bit, didn't it? And that animation looked shit. So um, yeah, hope, I hope the CGI is a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, that, I'm excited yeah, for that. On that. Yeah, he's been. He's. I think he's been working very hard to perfect the technology, and so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, he's he's very good. He's directed a couple of things as well, and obviously, he's very good at the way he brings the animals to life. But like you say, without the technology to make sure it looks all right, you would struggle. So we'll see, hopefully, hopefully, he gets that. Yeah, and and one one last one from me. I'm not sure. I'm not super interested in the in, in the circumstances behind this, but it, it was a bit notable that Thandiwe Newton or Tandiwe Newton. I apologise. Uh, oh yeah, I saw she's, this. She's yeah, left yeah. the Magic Mike sequel. Her, her her reason for it was family reasons. She she can't do the film anymore. She's got to deal with some personal stuff. And then a source from the production said that she left because she had a blazing row with uh, Channing Tatum about the um, uh, the Will Smith Chris Rock incident. Um, and they fell out over it, which is a rather odd thing to fall out over. Um, but apparently they, well, that's that's the reason that was alleged. She's since come back and denied and said that that's the case at all. So I don't think we're going to know for a while what that is. But it's a, it's a slightly odd footnote to the Oscars that, you know, that this, this was alleged. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they've been a bit childish with it. Um, they're both grown adults. And, you know, it's... I don't think it's something to you know lose you know a talented actress over, but if she's been if she's been genuinely out of line, then she's been genuinely out of line. But he is the producer on that film, so if she's been it, look if, if that it, out of line, then there's only you know given he's producer on the film and is the main character. If someone was going to leave, it wasn't going to be him. Um, things like this, it's normally if they were getting on great about everything else, it would be weird for them to fall out so much over something as stupid as that so they can't work together so either it's a bullshit story or there was a lot of other shit going on yeah but anyway Salma Hayek is now playing that part in the film so those are all the news stories I had I don't know if you had anything else mate um no I think we can get into it very good okay so the next thing we normally talk about on the uh, on the podcast in this roundup is what new films are coming out soon we've already talked about uh, the Nick Cage film being out now um Shout out about any that you've uh, that have caught your eye that, that interests you, mate. But I've got a little list here. Um, yeah, you crack on. Twenty uh, ninth um, of April, Downton Abbey: A New Era is out, which is uh, a big, big, big fat off. meh from me. I mean, I'm sure if you like the TV show, you'll like these films. Uh, you know that 
One that I'm curious about, just because I don't think you get many of these, there's a film called on the 29th coming out called The Feast, which is a horror film in the Welsh language. Oh. Uh, which is quite, you know, uh, interesting that, that that's happening. Uh, I don't really know much else about it, but I thought that's quite an interesting uh, thing to be going on. Uh, a very big release on the 5th of May is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, that does look quite good. Yeah, I saw the trailer and it looks good. I mean, I mean Sam, Sam Raimi, if he's been given free reign to do what he wants to do, that should be good. Because not only is he, he's done some good superhero stuff. Let's forget about Spider-Man 3 for now, which I don't think was entirely his fault. Um, he has done some good superhero-based stuff and he's got a good horror track record. And I think the multiverse of madness is kind of meant to be kind of horror inflected with the bit of HP Lovecraft influences, which we talked about and when we talked about the future of Marvel. So um, my fingers are crossed for that. I'm hoping to go out and see that when it comes out as well. Um, for those who like a music documentary and like Mick Cave, Nick Cave, sorry, on the 11th of May, this much I know to be true is coming out, which is a documentary about Nick Cave's music. Um, on the 13th of May, there's a remake of Firestarter. Um, the uh, Stephen King horror adaptation, which obviously we discussed John Carpenter's attempts to make that and the rather kind of poor version by another director that eventually came out. Given that the original film that we eventually saw wasn't brilliant, I wouldn't be against seeing someone do a good version of this, but I saw the trailer of this and it looked pretty average and there's no top-line talent involved in writing and directing it, so wait and see. There's a couple of good actors in it, but, you know, we'll see. Uh, and another one coming out on the 13th of May, this is something, obviously, something that's happening a bit more, is that there's a film called The Quiet Girl coming out, which is a drama in the in the Irish language, Irish Irish Gaelic. So there are a few um, uh, few films clearly being made in, in, in some of the less spoken languages of the British Isles, which, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's good that it's happening. If people want to see that and want to see a film in their own language, uh, it'd be ni- you know, it's nice to see that it's happening. Um 20th of May, there's a film called Men coming out, which is a new horror film. Uh, it's written and directed by Alex Garland, who wrote the Dread film that we both like, and he's uh, directed a, 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 or made a couple of other films that, that have been very interesting, such as Ex Machina and Annihilation. Um, the trailer looks intriguing. Um, so it's one of those ones where if it works, it should be really good. But, you know, you know, I'm sure you've seen a few trailers, mate, that were quite promising, and, that, and then the film wasn't very good. So I'll reserve judgment. Yeah, I don't like watching trailers anymore because they do give a lot of the film away yes. and then you've got to try and, you know, I really that's why I didn't see the um, the second Venom film because I feel like the best joke was in that trailer yeah, and it, yeah. got kind of, it got kind of mixed reviews. So I, I remember, when, yeah. we, I remember when, we, when we went to see Bad Neighbours, it was just kind of an impulse thing, was it? Let's go and see that and neither of us had seen the trailer and we really enjoyed it and then I later saw the trailer, Bad Neighbours. Oh, yeah. Uh, as na- for our American uh, for our American listeners, Neighbours is what it's called over there. But because there's a TV show called that over here, it's called Bad Neighbours. That's the Seth Rogen thing. It's at least two of the best scenes or jokes in the film were in the trailer, and I'd I'd have been really pissed if I'd seen the trailer and had those ruined for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, other than that, there's a film on the 20th of May coming out called The Innocents. It's another horror film. It's a it's a Scandinavian horror film about scary children with supernatural powers so um that's to be honest that kind of tells you everything you need to know about a film like that doesn't it it'll be bleak it will probably be genuinely horrifying um and vortex it's a film about dementia there's been a few of those lately 
Um, I mean, obviously, there was Anthony Hopkins, the father. This is directed by Gaspar Noé, who did uh, things like Irreversible and uh, and Love, and is a highly controversial director. Uh, this could be in questionable taste, given the way he normally makes his films. So I imagine we might be talking about news headlines that come out from that film uh, next month. Um, and the last one is a, a film called The Road Dance, which is a period drama set in the Outer Hebrides just before World War II, which could be could be interesting. So it's interesting what I, what I saw the last sort of round of trailers I saw. There's quite a few kind of odd little um, films being made from different parts of the British Isles that we don't normally see, which I thought was quite good. Other than that, it's been a bit of a quiet month. There doesn't seem to be as much going out as it has been. Um, I think yeah. we've got. I think we've got past that bit where all the films that were waiting to be released have been released. Notwithstanding that Top Gun, Top Gun Maverick's due to come out, but I think after that, I think all the delayed films will be out, won't they? Fingers crossed. Yeah. So, um, other than that, we've talked about what uh, what we're going to see or what people might want to go and see. Now it's about what we've seen this month. Have you had a chance to see anything in the cinema this month, mate? No, I've been. Shocker. I know you've been working and you know refloring yeah. your house and everything. Not I did, the whole house, but two rooms. So yeah, yeah. I'm not. I've barely. I've been any time I've had not doing that. It's been taking like carpets to the dump. So I've yeah. just been watching stuff on. Like, I'll get my Netflix up and I'll yeah, try yeah. and discuss some of the things I watch. Sure. Well, I did manage to go and see one thing at the cinema. Um, I had to. I had to make two attempts to go and see it because I got a COVID diagnosis the first time, so I had to cancel going. <laughs> diagnosis. Fuck off. Yeah. yeah well, I, te- <laughs> I tested positive for COVID, so I had to. I had to delay by about <laughs> ten days going to see the film. To see the film, I wanted to see was called X, which I was intrigued by. It was billed as a cross between uh, Boogie Nights and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In that, a, a in the late seventies, a, a, a group of independent porn filmmakers go to a, 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 a ranch or a farm in Texas to, to shoot a porn film, uh, only to find that the people who live at the, uh, the, the, uh, at the farm are weird, dangerous, uh, and, and out to kill them. Uh, so it's a horror movie. It's, it's not as good as that kind of uh, scenario suggests. I mean, you, maybe that's asking too much for a film that's across between Boogie Nights and Texas Chainsaw Massacre to be as good as both those films. It was okay. The main actress was playing two roles, the lead girl and the female antagonist. Um, it's it sort of very heavy age makeup because the, the couple who live on the farm are very old. It, it had it had lots of film in jokes, which I'm fine with, but it, what it didn't have was enough actual good story. Um, we're, I think on this on this podcast, we're, we're, none of us are neither of us are against films that refer to other films. I mean, otherwise, we couldn't watch a Tarantino film. But the film's got to stand on its own two feet. And while this had some good scenes, some good kills, it didn't quite work as a story. Partly because the the antagonists in the film are really old and therefore really frail, and therefore it kind of they had to contrive a lot of situations in which that would be scary. Because quite frankly. A really, really old, frail person shouldn't be that much of a threat to half a dozen quite young, healthy people. Um, but yeah. it was, it was okay. So it had some well staged moments, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't a classic in my view. It's getting some good reviews from from some horror fans, so fair play, but not not for me. So, so what came up in your? We're kind of doing your, um, we're kind of doing your resolution now, mate. Which is what. Uh, what films did you see in general? So, sort of Netflix and, and other kind of platforms well, that you watch films. It's on. a bit confusing. So. You know how we share a Disney Plus? I don't do, know if that's going to be bummed we? off on Disney. Shh, shh, shh. Yeah, okay. But I definitely didn't watch Dinosaur this month, or uh, Gigantosaurus, or Playtime with Puppy Dog Pals, or no. Return of the Jedi. <laughs> no. <laughs> so was no. that you? Yeah, that was that was me trying to trying to <laughs> trying to enter trying to entertain Rohan with uh, with some new content. So, 
Um, yeah, what did I see? I saw the King of Staten Island. What was that like? Um, excuse me. Um, the King of Staten Island was actually better than I thought it would be. I do like Pete Davidson. I find him very funny. And it's got Bill Burr in it as well. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was actually... It's a funny film. And it's, it's it draws a lot of parallels to Pete Davidson's actual life. Um, yeah, I remember reading some interviews about it, although I haven't seen the film. But it's good for a good chuckle. It's... Um, it made me laugh, um, and yeah, it's 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 just a it's just, it's got kind of some wholesome moments, but it is it is funny. It's it's a bit ridiculous, but if anyone liked Pete Davidson, um, I'd give that film a watch. And I also watched the new Jackass. Yeah, and what was that like? I, well, we know what I like. I love that that film series. I remember you and I watched Jackass three on a flight back from Tenerife and nearly yeah, pulled yeah. the plane down with our laughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's got some very funny moments. It does feel a little bit different without Ryan Dunn. Obviously, he passed yeah. away. Must be yeah. eleven years ago now. Yeah. Um, and given the but, age of some of the the original performers, they've brought in some younger people, haven't they? Is what I well, read. It's got interesting. For the first shot of the film, Johnny Knoxville's got jet black hair, and then by the end of the film, he's just let his hair color be whatever it is, and it's, he goes quite grey <laughs> towards oh, right. the end of it. Oh, wow. So it was like, I wonder if they started filming it in 2011 and then just got around to finishing it in the now. But um, no, it was, yeah. it's or maybe, good. Or maybe he stopped dyeing his hair after filming that sequence. Yeah, it feels a bit weird not having Ryan Dunn, and obviously Bam's, Bam Margera's not anymore, because Bam's obviously struggling quite a lot. Yeah. So I think he struggled quite a lot with his best friend's um, death. But the new guys are good. Um, you know, they do well to kind of bleed themselves in. Um and they do. They they made me laugh as well because I did worry that I was only going to laugh at Steve O and Wee Man and Preston. Yeah, and all yeah, those people. yeah. But no, there's some. There's. It's. I know it's not going to be everyone's thing, and there are some moments that I. There's a bit with the tarantula, and I'm not a big fan of arachnids in general, so I didn't watch that bit. But it it's it does worry me that these guys have been doing this for twenty years now, and they still fall for the same things. Yeah. Like, there's a bit where he has to be tied up for a lie detector. Or they prank each other and stuff, don't they? No, the pranks I can understand because you don't always see them coming. But basically, yeah. they they tie one of them up, say, oh, you're going to do a lie detector, and if you get it wrong, you get stung. Uh, with a, with a, you get hit with a taser. Yeah. And he's like, okay, right, I'll do that. And he's confident that he'll pass the lie detector test. And he, he lets himself get chained up, and they go, right, well, we can do whatever the fuck we want to him now. And... <laughs> When that thing, I'm not going to tell anyone listening, but when that thing happens, when Aaron is tied up for his lie detector, and then the actual thing that they're there for happens, I was howling. And I cannot believe he keeps falling for that, because in Jackass 3, he's asked to carry a tray of hot soup, and he yeah. carries it into the kitchen and gets slammed with a giant hand, and they all go, I can't believe he fell for the soup. That was 11 <laughs> years ago. I can't believe he fell for getting tied up in a lie detector in a shop, because that's not the thing he's there for. Yeah. But yeah, no, good value, lots of chuckles, lots of laughs. Um, other than that, been a quiet kind of month for that kind of thing. I've just, here and there, just kind of stuck on an episode of House or... Excuse me. I've just stuck on like an episode of House or um, Clarkson's Farm, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I watched a couple more sort of new or newish films uh, on on streaming just to try and get up to date. Um, but that's kind of your new. Re- that's kind of your resolution for for the month. You've managed to watch a couple of films given how busy you are. I think that's yeah. a good effort. And you know what? There wasn't a lot on at the cinema last month. I mean, I went to see X because I didn't want to not see something at the cinema. Um. I was kind of, I was I was looking back, uh, funnily enough, you know, just I was trying to kind of remember all the films that I've been to see ever at the cinema, 
And there were a couple of there were a couple of times in the eighties for me, which you know, living in places that weren't near a cinema or stuff like that, where I didn't actually see a film all year. So now I do, and also for the podcast, I do try and make an effort to see a film at the cinema whenever I can. But if I hadn't been for that, I might have said, "Ah, oh, fuck it, I'm not that interested in anything that's out." Do you know what I mean? Um, but uh, so I do try and make an effort. Other than that, there, there was more on streaming, I think, than than sort of new cinema releases. Uh, the first thing I saw that was a new release was uh, Deep Water, which was the Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas uh, film. It's a erotic oh, thriller directed by Adrian. Shit. It's fucking dog shit. Um, it's really weird because Adrian Lyne was once known as the king of the erotic thriller with things like Fatal Attraction, Nine and a Half Weeks, and Decent Proposal. It's not the only things he did, but he did quite a few of them. His time has definitely passed. I think this is his first film in like 20 years. And sometimes when a director comes back after that long without directing, you can see the you know, they're kind of, whatever they had, they don't have it anymore. It's definitely the case with him. And its problem was it didn't do the job of a trashy erotic thriller, the sort of thing that gets made cheaply with not very well-known stars, but at least it has all this stuff like, you know, there is some, you know, erotic behaviour and then, and then someone's going to get killed because of usually jealousy or some other reason. It's it's crap, but at least you know what you're getting. And it's on, it used, you used to get those films straight to video, then they used to get shown on Channel 5. There was always a place for that kind of film. This is like expensively made with a well-known director and big name actors. So, well, is this going to be elevated? Is, is this going to be something? And it was just dull. It just didn't, the, the, none, of the, none of the characters either made any sense or made you care about them. And it was just like, ugh, whatever, you know. Um, what, I mean, there's, it's quite a good cast, but just it just sat there and died for two hours. Um, I watched uh, Death on the Nile, which is a fairly oh, recent release, which was fine. It's not. Oh, as, I tried to watch that. I couldn't get into it. It's not as good as Murder on the Orient Express. I don't think the original story is as good. I mean, the, the previous adaptations of these two films went exactly the same way. That Murder on the Orient Express was great, and then Death on the Nile was fine. And it's gone exactly that way this time. It's very well mounted. Ken Branagh knows what he's about. It's Agatha Christie. It features rich people, glamorous settings, and posh murders. So it, it does its job. Um, it's fine um, and I started to watch West Side Story because it's a big film it's a big Spielberg film and obviously it was one of the Oscar nominees so I was trying to get up to date with as many films as I could for, for that um, it's probably brilliant but I just couldn't get on with it it's yeah. so it's, it's it looks beautiful all the actors are good they kind of know what they're doing but you know the first time I saw like the gangsters um, head towards each other in kind of dance formation. I just went, I'm sorry, guys, this just isn't for me. It's probably brilliant, right? In fact, it almost certainly is brilliant. It's Sondheim, it's Spielberg. Everyone's made a big effort to do this right, but I just don't think this is for me. So I'm not going to slag it off. It's just not for me. Yeah, that was the same, exactly the same opinion for me. Yep. And I wanted to briefly mention a film. This isn't a new film, a new release or anything else. It's something I just happened to catch on the TV. Uh, it was on just during the day one day, and we were indoors, we were cooking or something at a weekend. You know when you just you're not out, and what's on the telly kind of really catches your eye. It's a British film from a, I don't know about somewhere like somewhere like eight years ago called This Beautiful Fantastic, and it was it was kind of all right, and it, it was kind of met in places. But while I was watching it, I felt like it was it was like it was a you know like a, a, a cigarette paper away from being an absolutely great film. It could have been the British version of Amelie. Okay. Uh, it's got some really interesting stuff in it. It's the sort of thing where if someone actually tried to remake that with a bit more money and actually kind of sold the script, it could actually really work. It was kind of, it was slightly, it had these slightly fantastical elements, but it was built around a couple of people who were gr grieving and struggling or they've got to rebuild their lives. 
and they kind of um they share like a garden space or they share adjoining gardens and it's all about what the sensory beauty of a garden can do for you and i think if it, it had had like a a real visionary director it could have been one of these little gem films that that, that works it's odd because it's really stuck with me and there are scenes in the film that really it's tom wilkinson's in it and he's always good there's scenes and, and andrew scott sexy priest and and uh from fleabag and it could have been it could have been one of these amazing eccentric little films that kind of uh, just stays with you bits of it have stayed with me and i just wanted to mention it you know maybe other people like to watch it and think James, you're mad. I don't know what the fuck you saw in it, but it was it was a quirky little film that, f- f- for five minutes at a time, was absolutely terrific before falling back. And I, I just it's kind of, it, it just kind of stuck with me a little bit, even though it's not great, but it could have been if you see what I mean. Yeah. So that that's my that's my film watching. I did watch a few new things. Um, cool. So I mean, I think you fulfilled your resolutions for for the month, and I know you did that under the pressure of being really busy with other things. Um, my New Year's resolution for twenty twenty two was to do a project similar to the one I did last year, uh, and this year's is called uh, two thousand and twenty two: A Kubrick Odyssey, where each month I watch uh, an entry from uh, Kubrick's film, and by the end of the year, I'll have watched all you know all of the films that he directed. Um, this uh, this month, I'm doing Spartacus, the uh, Roman epic about the uh, gladiator slave turned rebel uh it's a, a true story obviously fictionalized for the film um it's obviously quite iconic you know there's the i'm spartacus scene that everyone remembers it's it's kirk douglas's favorite film of the films he made or what he what he thought was like his strongest film that he did um it's very i mean it's, it's good in all bunch of ways it's probably kubrick's least personal film which is mainly because um the film was all set to be directed by a different director called anthony mann and it wasn't working out, and and Douglas fired him, and he brought in Kubrick because he'd been impressed by Kubrick from the previous film they'd done together, Paths of Glory, um, and uh, Kirk Douglas wanted this to be his legacy, the film that he would remember, he would be remembered for, which I think it is. Um, he needed a director who would make this stand out, and I think Kubrick definitely makes it stand out. But it's definitely not Kubrick saying, "I'm going to do this film. This is what this film is going to be about, and this is how I want to make it." Do you know what I mean? Like pretty much all of his other films, he sets out to make a certain film. And in this film, he sets out to make a film that he's kind of been hired to do by Kirk Douglas. Um, so what that meant was there was a lot of battles because Kubrick still comes in and says he wants things a certain way. He wanted to make some changes to the script. He you know, he basically taught, he fell out with a cinematographer and told him to sit down and Kubrick would be his own director of photography because the cinematographer just wasn't doing what Kubrick wanted him to do. Which is really ironic because that cinematographer won an Oscar for this film because Kubrick told him to sit down and, and let him do it for him, which is ironic. Um, I mean, you've seen Spartacus, haven't you, mate? What did you think of it? Yeah, I saw it um, relatively late. I think I was about eighteen when I saw it. But no, it's it was obviously a bit dated at the time, but it's still a, it's still a good film. It's one of those ones that I think I would have liked if they'd had like a budget for it back then and like the kind of facilities to do it. Kind of more justice back then, so obviously it was done in what 1950, 1960. So 1960, yeah, yeah, around about the time. It, it had a very big budget for the time, but I don't think it had a very big budget for what it was trying to do. If you see what I mean, it, I think the, yeah, it's probably it might be money or it might be resources. The resources that were available to Kubrick, uh, sorry, to Ridley Scott for Gladiator would have done Kubrick a favor, wouldn't it? Yeah, that kind of yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, there's some interesting kind of bits of film industry for it in that Dalton Trumbo wrote the script, uh, even though he was blacklisted for 
um, uh, being too left wing for 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 the Americans, uh, and, huh. and you know you don't have to be that left left wing to be too left wing for for Americans, do you? Uh, and uh, Kirk Douglas insisted that uh, um, Dalton Trumbo get screen credit for what for his writing, uh, which meant he broke the blacklist. So Kirk Douglas basically said, "I've had enough of this. I've had enough of these kind of right wing psychopaths kind of killing our industry." Uh, and he uh, he uh, Kirk Douglas was a bastard, but he he was fearless and he fought for what he believed in. Um, so that was a good thing. Um, interestingly, Kubrick didn't like the I'm Spartacus scene, uh, yeah. which for those who haven't seen the film is a scene where um, they want to, they want Spartacus's gladiators to betray him or his, his fellow fighters to betray him. And, and Kirk Douglas doesn't want his other guys to die. So he stands up to say, I'm Spartacus. But before he knows it, Tony Curtis and all the other people stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, which one works in the, the scene dramatically you say we're not giving our guy up but it also works in the i'm spartacus as in you know everyone who who, who wants to be free you know is spartacus it embodies what he believed in so it's so i think that's just one that kubrick got wrong and douglas D- kirk douglas and kubrick um fought heavily over many things to the point that kirk douglas's wife suggested they got a couples therapy together um so it's kind of weird that actually the film's better because of, of that of that struggle, do you know what I mean? Kubrick fought for certain things and made it better, but he's probably he was probably right that he lost some of the battles he lost. It's funny because it's, I think it did it did Kubrick a lot of good because it's got a great cast: Charles Lawton, Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, Lawrence Olivier, Pete Ustinov. Um, it's it was the biggest budget you'd ever had to deal with. It was a big hit. It won three Oscars. Um, it certainly propelled him you know properly onto the A list, but he he didn't enjoy the experience because. Um, he hates fighting. He hates that kind of confrontation. Uh, reading up about this film, I realised that what Kubrick did, you know, because Kubrick's very dominating, he makes people do things his way all the time on his films. There are he, like 160 takes of it. And but, he, but, he, but he never raises, raises his voice to do it and he never gets flustered. He just says, look, I want you to do it my way. And he doesn't fight people like that. Whereas Kirk Douglas would get into blazing rows with people. And at the end of the film, Kubrick was like, that was really exhausting. I hate fighting like that. And Kirk Douglas was like, I fight like that with everyone in every film. So Kirk Douglas was fine. He was like, that was normal for him. But for Kubrick, it was too much. And it was the reason that Kubrick actually let, one of the reasons Kubrick left America and went to make his films in Britain where he could kind of do things more his way. But I mean, obviously it it concerns um, the true story as much as we know. It's been done in different ways. There's a really good historical novel about Spartacus by Lewis Grassett Gibbon, which I recommend. Um, This tells the story of Spartacus being kind of enslaved but because he's big and strong and and fights back when he's when he's mistreated, they say he'll make a good gladiator, and they put him in with a bunch of other gladiate gladiators. But instead of um, uh, agreeing to fight and die for Caesar, they rebel, uh, and it, it turns into a movement. It turns into an army. This was actually the third slave rebellion, and this one really scared the shit out of Rome. They thought this could this could really kind of bring things down for them. Um, and in in the end, Spartacus loses. I don't think I'm spoiling any plot because, you know, the Roman Empire stayed up. Um, but the way he fought the battle is is pretty striking. I don't know, I don't know about you, mate, but I thought it was quite interesting. There weren't as many battle scenes as I was expecting. Yeah, Kubrick's not really done... I mean, it's weird because Kubrick did Path to Glory and I thought there was a lot of battle in that. He did more battle scenes in Path to Glory and in a later film called Barry Lyndon than he did in this. I thought it was curious. There were... And I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a, a purposeful choice on behalf of someone, whether it's the scriptwriter or whether it's Kirk Douglas, whether it's Kubrick, to kind of save all the big battle scenes for the like the big climax. Because there's a few times 
where what I was expecting to see was at least some kind of montage, you know, like a burning city and like clash of swords and the Romans being propelled back just to kind of give you that kind of idea of, you know, the this rebellion is sweeping Rome or sweeping Italy. And in the end, you don't get that much of that. You get kind of the, uh, you know, you get news, you know, Olivier gets news back in Rome. Shit, you know, we've lost another battle. This, what, what do we have to do to stop this Spartacus? I'm not sure quite whether they made that choice. I mean, I, I mean, I thought it was. I, I really enjoyed the film, but I was expecting a little bit more action along the way before that big final battle. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, it's also interesting um, if you look at Kubrick's films. I think he did about half and half, black and white to color, and I think part of the reason for that is illustrated in this film because this is like a late fifties, early sixties Technicolor film so it has a similar look and feel to things like Quo Vadis and Ben-Hur which came out around about the same time where everyone looks very bronzed because that's what the the color film looked like yeah and um it's strange because you know that Olivier doesn't look like that Hang on, has he got fake tan on what he's he, everyone looks really bronze and it's that's the coloring of, of of color film back then and he didn't make another color film uh, until 1968 with 2001 and, and, and the colour stock then looks photorealistic it's like yeah that's what human skin look you know all the skin tones and everything else look far, far more realistic so you know his next two films Lolita I'm pretty, pretty sure Lolita's black and white and definitely Doctor Strange is black and white and it's like he just said look the, the colour color film's not there yet for me do you know what I mean um, but it's look it's 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 a it's a terrific film. I, I think it stands out because the way Kubrick films it and some of the dialogue and the way in which the battles take place and the way in which the, the story is explored, it, it is a cut above the kind of traditional epics of the day. Um, it is definitely worth watching for that. It, does, it doesn't have many Kubrick touches, but it has a few of them here and there. There's a lovely scene where, lovely, but a, a beautifully done scene where Laurence Olivier is trying to seduce Tony Curtis, who is, who is um, his slave, and it's all shot from through a doorway like you're spying on them or like you've just walked in and seen it happening and you know not many you know films had those kind of touches back then so it's definitely worth watching terrific film and it's all right Kirk Douglas is great um it's inspired me to do an impromptu top 10 which I always do for the um for the roundup uh this impromptu top 10 inspired by Spartacus it's a pretty simple one top 10 Kirk Douglas films so apart from Spartacus uh in no particular order the top 10 Kirk Douglas films uh, that I think of are Paths of Glory Lust for Life uh, replay Vincent van Gogh, uh, Seven Days in May, Ace in the Hole, The Bad and the Beautiful, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Lonely Are the Brave, Champion, Detective Story, and Gunfight at the OK Corral. So that's the impromptu top 10. That's the Cuba country for this month. And uh, next month, we'll be discussing the highly controversial Lolita from 1962. You got anything to add for the roundup, mate? Nope. Okay, well, thank you very much. We will move on. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of all the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from award-winning music biopic Walk the Line to gothic family drama Eve's Bayou. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list, and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials for a classic you'd like us to watch. 
This Month's Entry is a French suspense film from the 1950s, which spawned countless imitations and a famous remake. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 24 is The Wages of Fear. So, James, I think we've talked about The Wages of Fear before, and it was one of the first films that I put on the list of classics, because I'd, I'd bought it on the recommendation that it was a classic old film and then never got around to watching it. Uh, what's your history with this film? Never heard of it. Never heard of um, it. No, I had no idea it existed. I had to do a bit of research into who who done it, how much it made, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, obviously it's one of those films, I mean, a, a suspense, black and white suspense film in French with subtitles is not going to be kind of that prominent in the modern day in the Western world, obviously. It, it's definitely a film that influenced a lot of people from Spielberg to Kubrick to a bunch of other people. Um, some of the truck, the way the truck is filmed in Spielberg's debut, Duel, is influenced by this. Many sort of suicide mission type films are definitely influenced by it and it has been remade, you know, a couple of times. They're even talking about um, Ben Wheatley uh, doing a remake of it, which um, maybe, maybe not. I'm, I'm not. Ben you know. Wheatley, what did he do again? Um, he did. He did things like uh, he did things like Kill List and um, A Field in England, and he also did the Rebecca remake that we watched. Oh fuck! Um, so this film was directed by Henri Georges Clouseau. We've already featured him once on this podcast uh, a while back for a film called Diabolique, which was like the like the French equivalent of a Hitchcock film. This is like a, an action thriller from the day. Um, I think the first thing to say is that it's, it's. I think it's inevitable that a film that comes out in 1953 and is an action suspense thriller, it's going to date. Because if you talk about, you know, filmmakers who were influenced by this film, everyone from Scorsese to Paul Schrader to Spielberg and other people, they remember watching this film and being gripped, white knuckle ride, yeah. absolutely everything else. And I, I just don't think that can be sustained for, you know, nearly 70 years. Because 70 years on, I mean, just by the very fact of making a film like this and other people watching it and wanting to do something as exciting as that, it will be superseded before long. In the same way that guitar riffs from the 60s got superseded by the people who went and made records in the next 30 years, the way, you know, uh, John Carpenter's Halloween, you know, the, you know, everything that happened after Halloween was a lot gorier, even though people were shocked by that film. So that's a preface to it. I thought it was similar in a sense to when we watched The Big Sleep, mate, in that it's kind of, it's very of its time. But what I mean, what did you think of it on the whole? Um, I thought it was quite good. I really like the premise. See, when you when you get me with a premise like that, I'm yeah. I'm into the film right away. I like the kind of idea of like these kind of almost yeah, like these dueling trucks. It was cool. Yeah. I like the kind of. I mean, it's um, de it's definitely an in an ingenious premise, isn't it? Yeah, as soon as you have a good premise, I'm I'm there. Although that's not always the case; it does have to be done well, and I do think this film does it well. We've had examples of films that have really good ideas, like Looper. Yeah, but didn't like the way it was done. Yeah, and didn't didn't, so. didn't pull it off. Great idea, not quite pulled off. Yeah, but no. If you have if you have the good idea, I'm there right away. And if you do it well, even better. Um, yeah. So so a bit of background for the listeners. Um, if you have listened to the Diabolic episode, you'll know some of the stuff about Cluzo. So I won't um uh, go on with it. Uh, He's a very influential director of the time. He's part of the reason Inspector Clouseau has that name uh, in the, the Pink Panther films because Blake Edwards was a bit of a cinephile and wanted to kind of pay a little tribute to him. In the 40s and 50s, he was pretty much it. He was seen as the French Hitchcock. As tastes and fashions changed, um, the new wave of French filmmakers like Godard and Truffaut kind of moved away from him. But I think he's recognised now as a, a genuine film pioneer. He was a, you know, he made some classic films. Um... This film is based around the idea that in South America, uh, various desperate people are living in a 
kind of a, a, a nowhere village. Um, they're criminals. They're escaping something. They're there because they've got nowhere else to go. They make ends meet doing whatever odd jobs are available. There's not really that much going on. They'd love to leave, but it costs too much money. You need like thousands of dollars for a visa to go somewhere else, even if you have got somewhere else to go. Uh, and then a crisis occurs. There is a um, a disaster at a local oil well run by a, an American multinational company, a rather ruthless American multinational company, which doesn't get kind of, you know, uh, described very kind of sympathetically in this film. Um, this fire is threatens to destroy the well and get out of control. The only way to um, put out the fire is to use nitroglycerin to cause explosions, which kind of deprive the um, the, the oil well of oxygen. The only way to get nitroglycerin to that well uh, is across the jungle. Um, you can't fly. There's no, you know, the, the only way to do it is drive it in trucks. And the the American oil well can't get any of its own people to do this. The American oil company can't do this because their unions quite rightly say, "Fuck you, we're not going to like risk our people's lives." So they go to this village full of desperate people to say, "Look, this is more money than you'll ever see, but it's dangerous. You might die. Who wants to drive this uh, these trucks?" And they get some volunteers. And two trucks full of nitroglycerin have to drive through various treacherous South American locations, winding roads, platforms that could fall down, uh, you know, uh, mud, uh, you know, getting stuck in the mud, all various things to try and get across there. One slip, one bump, you could die, you'll get blown up. They send two trucks because there's, I think there's a really good chance that at least one truck is going to blow up. So these people's lives are worth nothing. And you follow these sort of four desperate people who all for their own reasons have decided to take on this mission and see how close they get to um, to uh, surviving and, and getting the nitroglycerin to put out the fire. Uh, and what follows is a series of high suspense sequences where they frequently come within a, a millimetre uh, of being killed and, and blown up. Uh, it's got Yves Montand in the lead role, who this is his film debut. He was known as a bit of a crooner, but he went on to have a pretty successful film career. A lot of other actors that you kind of haven't really heard of because it's you know from france in the early 50s um it's in black and white i thought it had quite a long build-up it went to a lot of trouble to tell you about the village and the characters and everything else but once they got set up it was all about the suspense in the trucks wasn't it mate yeah it, it does that kind of i didn't realize it was long as long a film as it was and it does build it's very up, it's yeah. very long for the 50s it's over two, it's like two and a half hour it's film. nearly two hour 40 yeah yeah which it's very very rare for films to be that long in the in in the 50s unless they're kind of um, sort of, you know, historical dramas with with a wide scope. This is, it's you know, much more common now for a, a a pure suspense film to have that kind of running time, but unusual, isn't it? Yeah, um, I think it does. I think a little bit could be said for it to be kind of trimmed down a little bit. It is trying to build up the suspense, and I do understand that to some degree, but I, I, I do think they could have kind of slimlined it a little bit. Yeah, and we will we will see a, a, you know, in the remake section of this of this episode a, a different treatment of the same story, and it'll be interesting to compare. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of talk in exposition, which is interesting because obviously it's. I, I think there are a few things that they could have shown cinematically rather than describe. And I was slightly surprised that we didn't see more of the oil well explosion. We were told about that later. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was very good. I think it's. You know, you hear stories about the original King Kong and Dracula films absolutely knocking audiences out, but seeing a bit tame now. This is the same way you could see how an audience would be really blown away by this at the time. And it still works. It's still suspenseful. You think, oh, my God, how are they going to get through? And it's quite, um, it was quite tough and nihilistic in tone for the time, wasn't it? I don't think, you know, I don't think audiences would expect something that's quite of 
you know, these characters are pretty tough and not necessarily full of redeeming features. Um, and it's just about whether they survive or not. They're, they don't really have a hero. Yeah. But no, it, it, yeah, like it's weird because the, what's the main guy's name again? Mario? Yeah. He's a, he's a bit of a playboy, isn't he? And he treats his missus like shit. Um, yeah. And that's kind of a weird trait to have in sort of the protagonist. He's one of like the main characters, but it's... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I would agree with you there. It's, it's I mean, a bit of an unusual one. I mean, and and that's the thing. It's I mean, I think that's how this has actually become a relatively influential film because I think that sort of character is much more common now. And I think this is one of the first times that you actually saw it. You know, expecting an audience to actually invest in the struggle of not necessarily sympathetic characters, uh, and to and to tell the story of quite a, a bleak kind of place where everyone's just trying to survive and they their friends, you know. They have friendly relations, but you get the feeling that if it came down to it, it came down to a fight for survival, they wouldn't necessarily have each other's backs. Um, and yet, you still find yourself gripped by their by their mission across the jungle. I mean, it's obviously a limitation. I mean, it was filmed on location, which was rare for the time, but it was filmed in in the south of France in the Camargue, and it doesn't really look like the South American jungle. Um, <laughs> Uh, but other than that, I thought it was I thought it was very good, and that, you know I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting way to shoot an action film where the vehicles are going quite slowly and it still works because obviously these these trucks have to drive quite carefully, don't they? So you have exciting sequences where the truck isn't going very fast because if the truck was going super fast, it would blow up. There is one interesting scene where there's a road which is I'm trying to remember why it was the way it was, but there was a particular road which is a bit treacherous and the only way to get across it quickly is to drive quite is to drive faster than you would like to um i, I think it's because of the surface was a bit i didn't i didn't entirely follow the reasoning but the reasoning was they had to drive this particular stretch of road quite fast and they've got a, a stopwatch going if we go if we do this for much longer then we're going to be in a lot of trouble and it, it went i think it had I think it built a lot of things that are quite are quite well known in, in action films now. The idea that this thing has got to happen by this time or in this way, and if not, you, you you're doomed. And there's a lot of sweaty brows and uh, and, and moments. So I think it uh, it's uh, again it's like it's like watching a, I think it's like watching a classic car that's you know has set the kind of design for f- future models. If you see what I mean. Yeah. No, I would agree. It's, it's very well shot. Um... You know, for a for a film in the fifties, you expect it to not. I don't know, being a bit a bit stereotypical there, but not as slick. Yeah, and I very... mean the the way the way people throw a punch and hold a gun and run and jump off things is was normally a lot less kind of um, slick than than it is now. Do you know what I mean? But I think this holds its own actually quite well. No, it's they they did very well considering you know the the kind of. The, the limitations, set, the limitations yeah, the kind of, of the time. But also the task they set themselves with that kind of yeah. story and film. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. So yeah, I mean I'm I'm glad I watched this. It was one of the it was one of the features that I it was one of the films that actually inspired this feature. You know, when I was looking at my DVD collection going, look at all these films I haven't seen. I should I should start getting through these. This was one of them. So it's it's good to to have got it watched. Um yeah, I th- I think I think we would recommend this. I think it's a not just an interesting film because of what it tells you about you know how action films evolve but i think it's a it's a genuinely entertaining film in its own right
And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we're looking at a film whose premise and even title have made their way into common usage even though most people have never actually seen it. The hidden gem for episode 24 is Battle Royale. Yes. So, so James, you mentioned this in the last episode, and I hadn't seen it in a while. And it did inspire me to suggest it for this month. Um, it, it's it's very interesting because if you tell people the premise of this film and say it's battle royale, it's set on an island, it's a bunch of kids or people, whoever it is, you have to kill each other, and you know, there can only be one survivor, they would recognise the phrase battle royale. They would recognise the situation. Um, it would all be quite familiar to them. This. While it was a commercial success in, in, in its home country and did well where it was seen, it wasn't that widely seen. It wasn't shown in America for 10 years due to fears that it would get the blame for whatever school shooting was taking place at the time. So it's quite interesting that it, it is... Do you know what I mean? It's, it's a concept that everyone completely gets, and I'm not quite sure how it's found its way so deeply into like cultural consci- consciousness you know, without even need to be seen by all the people who, who understand it, if you see what I mean. Yeah, it's it does just seem like if if it had come out today, it would have been a rip off of the Hunger Games. But Hunger Games did rip this film off. Yes, yes. Um, um, it's absolutely bonkers. Um, it's yeah. I mean, obviously, it doesn't surprise me in the least that Quentin T- Tarantino managed to see it. He cast one of the actors from this film in Kill Bill. He obviously loved this movie. Um, one thing that interests me about this, I mean, I saw this film as an adult, obviously. I was in my 30s. I had small children, not teenage children. And while I think I identified with the teenage characters, uh, you know, most of all in this story, because they're the, they're the main characters, I'm probably nearer in age to the, the, the older generation, the adults, who have forced the kids into this situation uh, in the story. I assume when you watched this for the first time, you were quite near in age to these to these characters. What age were you when you first saw this? Probably about 16, yeah. Oh, perfect. Perfect age. It was on... Excuse me. It was on Netflix, I think, at the time. It yeah. was on um, one of those, and it's not, it's kind of disappeared off the face of the earth, I think. Is it still on any of those things? Yes, it's, it, it is It is around. I mean, I I, I, bought, I have my own copy, but I think it's available to watch. Um, okay. But yeah, it's not... Um, yeah, it's not you know front and center. It's obviously quite a controversial film. It's quite bleak. I mean, it shows teenagers getting killed in quite quite gruesome ways. Um, and I know it's, it's it's funny. The tone of it is what is what does it because teenagers being killed in gruesome ways is the subject of like every horror movie fucking ever. But yeah. it's the way in which they are forced to turn on each other, which is it's quite it can be distressing the way that it's kind of shown. I mean, how did it seem to you? I mean, as, as a teenager, you know, did you and your schoolmates discuss or imagine what a battle royale type situation would have looked like for your year group? You know, obviously, you you know you you, you know you you are the you are the age when you're watching this for the first time. You are the age of the people in the movie. I can't rightly remember. I don't think anyone at my school actually saw this film yeah. when I was at school. Um, and if you go into school and say, "Do you reckon they're going to make us all kill each other?" Like they're going to think you're going to be a school shooter or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not something you want to be the yeah. first person to bring up. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, I mean, so for for the benefit of people who haven't seen this, I think the the premise is very clear. But it's set in a future dystopian Japan where the government's collapsed, the economy's collapsed, uh, society is breaking down. As a means of dealing with kind of youth delinquency and to kind of help control the population, 
the Japanese government runs battle royale sequences in which a class of kids or a year of kids is selected at random and they are taken, they're forced onto an island, they're, um, they're fitted with collars so that they don't take part in the battle or they try and escape or they do anything they're not supposed to. Uh, the, the collar can be triggered and they'll be killed. Um, they are given weapons um, and sent out into the, the, the island. They can team up with other people who can live by themselves. But in two days, um, one if there's if one person is a survivor and has killed all the others, they win and get to go home. If there is, if they haven't finished, if if they if they don't have two, you know, if there are two or more people still alive, they just trigger all the collars and kill them all. And it's a uh, it's a it's a fight to the death with school teenagers as some sort of revenge for kids, you know, getting out of hand. Um, so it's uh, and what happens is the kids go out there. The whole thing is presided over for some reason by their former teacher who's got a personal grudge against a lot of them and a personal sort of preference for one of the the pupils which starts to kind of come out through the story. Um, It is bonkers, as you say, James. Um, They introduce a couple of extra characters. They've brought in characters from previous Battle Royales to to liven up, I think. It's almost like they're kind of trying to dominate and force and and, and, um, uh, influence the outcome of the Battle Royale. And you watch what these kids do to each other and what it does to them. Um, yeah, it's what it does to their mentality more than anything. Because yeah. we all know humans are capable of violence, but it's the it's the thing that makes them capable, if that makes yeah. sense. And it's the yeah. whole fight to survive, last one standing kind of thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've read a few different reviews of this film which had different opinions from reviewer to reviewer about whether this is about how, you know, how violent kids are or how violent society is or whether it's a fascist dictatorship that's doing this and that's what the film's criticising. But wh- where did you think the film's sympathies lie when you're watching it? Um, I don't know. I, I hadn't actually thought of it that way. Um, I mean, for it m- seem like it's a very sympathetic film. <laughs> no. I mean, for me, I, for me, I thought, you know, that the kids were forced into this, but then there are some kids who turn to it pretty quickly and other kids that, you know, are... You know, you know, there are different reactions to it, so you sympathise more or less with different characters in the story. I thought it was interesting that the, the writer had a nightmare about his teachers and his school doing this to him. And then he woke uh. up and thought that that would make a good story. And the director of the film, uh, Kinji Fukasaka, he was actually a veteran director. He was like 70 when he did this film. This was actually the last film that was made before he died. Um, and he, he remembers being a in his early to mid-teens I think during, towards the end of World War II and being forced to uh, go around cities that had been bombed and clear up broken bodies and some of them were forced to fight so he, he was attracted to the material because he'd actually seen kids that age brutalised by their surroundings and brutalised by a fascist regime and he thought it would be really interesting to explore what that does to kids in this situation so his sympathies are definitely with the children He's he's making a film about the way in which circumstances make kids like this and do that to them, which is why you get flashbacks to some of the kids, you know, their family situation or what's made them the way they are. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But I think the at the same time, some kids immediately go, right, I'm definitely up for this. Give me a gun. I will kill my classmates. I don't mind. Do you know what I mean? And there are other kids that would kill themselves rather than do it. So it 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 it... it, it it inspired kind of a range of emotions for me. There are times when I was genuinely kind of going, Jesus, that's strong. You know, people getting quite quite bad stuff happening to them. Yeah. It, the thing is, it's, it's hard to even kind of pinpoint 
the point of this film. It's a film that, because it's in such an absurd kind of, you know, reality where this is the kind of thing that, you know, kind of similar to Squid Game kind of vibes where yeah. people just get taken off somewhere. That's, I mean, that's definitely part of the. It's there's definitely a commentary on Japanese society, yeah. which what, how could it not be? It's Japanese people telling a story about stuff like this, and you know, it is it is one of those countries that actually had a fascist regime in place that you know tried to that brutalized its own people before they went and brutalized anyone else. Um, you, it can't not be influenced by those things. Do you know what I mean? Um, I thought, and that that reference to Squid Game, I think, is clearly a big thing because it's, it's there's that sequence at the beginning where they have that absurdly perky female TV presenter explaining the game to them with all of her little kind of little kind of mannerisms and everything that like if you've ever been to a yo sushi it's it's that voice that kind of insanely perky voice but she's explaining how they're going to be killed yeah. um and you know that clearly is some sort of commentary on the kind of uh you know it it it, it it's like a violent version of Takeshi's Castle in a sense. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of clearly referencing the way and the, the things that Japanese people have done to them, whether it's on the TV show, whether it's in the past, you know? Yeah. No, I, it's interesting that you've thought about it that way because I hadn't even thought about the kind of social commentary on it. It was, um, um, for me, it was just kind of. It, I mean, I mean, it work, I mean, I mean, I don't think I don't think you need to be interested in social commentary. I mean, it works as a premise straight off. I mean, this is almost this is one of the few films that's come out in the last twenty five years that's kind of kicked off its own genre or subgenre because now battle royale is very much a thing in video games and other you know shit shows and and films. It's not often that a new storyline comes out, you know. So it works. It works as a premise by itself, really, doesn't it? Yeah. No, it's. Uh... I mean, these these things always have a like a bit of a. a I mean, it, it's not completely new because you had things like The Running Man, which was a Stephen King novel, and then a movie, The Running Man, which you know used similar premises. So it's nothing is completely new in the world, but it definitely that whole the idea of a battle royale scenario um, distilled like this into a film. It's you know it's generally for the first time, but yeah. uh, there is something about something like this being done as a TV show. I mean, The Hunger Games. You know, they, they cl- the, the writer of The Hunger Games claimed never to have seen this film, which which I can sort of believe. Because she wrote the novel in 2007, 2008, and that film was not released in America until 2010. So it's possible she hadn't heard of it, but it is weird that no one at the publisher or no one along the way would go, this is a bit like Battle Royale. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. no, it's no skin of my nose if someone does a, a story based on that. And 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 uh, Hunger Games does add a whole different kind of political element to it that's not in, in, in the Japanese film. But it's odd that they just claim to have not known about it at all. You'd thought someone would at least have heard of it at some point between submitting us submitting us a manuscript and it and it getting published. Yeah, interesting. It's, I, I mean, it's done a different the two, way. The t- yeah, the two universes are two different things. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, this is so this I has think... got this hugely macabre kind of, yeah. uh, you know, the the idea that it's a televised endurance game show is a very Japanese way of doing it. I was thinking when I was watching this that a great special feature for this film would be a DVD commentary with Craig, Craig Charles. Aye. <laughs> Who does Takeshi's Castle on, on the British telly. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It, it, it is bonkers, and I think there is an element of... 
I always wonder, I don't know about you, but I always wonder when I'm watching a Japanese film whether there's something I'm missing about the way a story is portrayed because Takeshi Kitano, who plays the the teacher, who somehow seems to be in control of the whole government scheme to to do this to kids, even though previously he was a secondary school teacher. It's like, are they being, is that satirical? Do you know what I mean? I'm not quite sure how, how he's in the situation that he's in. Yeah. And the way in which he goes into the story and, and influences things from time to time without you know spoiling any plot details, I I kind of took it as this is there is a satirical element to this you know, um, and also you need some sort of confrontation between the protagonist and the kids to for the story. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I went with it. I didn't mind it. It's like it, I don't think it. I don't think a story like this needs to be one hundred percent realistic in all of its plot points. You know. No, yeah, it's, I know that we're talking about it more, and, and I do kind of see the kind of underlying tones and themes of the film. I just kind of saw it as a... It's a hell of a ride another, when you're watching it, Another isn't it? mental Japanese bit yeah. of film or media. Yeah. It's def- I mean, it's definitely quite mental. Um, what did you think of, of how it ended and the way that external characters were, were brought in to influence the outcome? I mean, you ne- the film needs to have an ending, right, that... That has some element of surprise in it, or in it, or, or somewhere to go. Um, were, do, do you think the scriptwriters were cheating a little bit, introducing external characters with their own agendas? Um, yeah, it's weird. Like it seems like they were. It was like they were kind of gubbed from the start. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, they were. It was like it seemed like they were trying to make out like the. Like there was a set of rules that they had to kind of follow, but they still tried to influence it themselves. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where some of the commentary comes in because I think yeah. the it's like if you watch a if you watch a Japanese film, an anime, or anything else that has a massive explosion in it. Yeah. You know, there's clearly a reference to Hiroshima and Nagasaki because you know that that country had two atom bombs dropped on it. So if they watch the city being destroyed in an explosion, uh, even if it's not overtly about that, it's partly influenced by that. You know, God, God, Godzilla d- attacks cities after being made massive by radiation. That's a story that comes from Japan for a reason. Do you know what I mean? And that doesn't mean every Japanese story is a commentary on its own history, or its own politics, but it's in the DNA. Do you know what I mean? Of the films. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love. We, we, we have a, we have a listener, Spug, who, who, who wanted us to do some more Asia extreme films, and this definitely meets that brief, doesn't it? This is quite tough. This is quite violent. It is no, it is quite violent for a film in two thousand. Uh, is it two thousand? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's out there, but no, yeah. it's it is it is excellent. I think it's. Uh, well, I mean, you listed it as one of the one of your best action films, best ten action films of the twenty first yeah. century. So yeah. you know, you can be you. I, we we haven't we haven't said too much about how much we love the film because I think that should be obvious. You know, we listed it as one of the best films of the twenty first century. It's uh, and it is. It's, an it's, it's Japanese, so you know it's going to be absolutely. Yeah, it's mental. definitely. It's definitely the 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 version of this that Hollywood did was twelve rated, which I think tells you everything you need to know about the difference between the American film industry and the Japanese and Korean film industries. Is that they do much harder edged versions of these stories, and this is as hard edged as, as really it gets. Yeah. Um, it was controversial even in Japan because a lot of Japanese critics were like, "Fucking hell, you've got teenagers murdering each other in school uniform." you know, bleeding to death and getting blown up. Fucking hell. And when the Japanese are saying fucking hell about a film, you know it's, you know, it's strong stuff, you know. Now for the one that got away. 
where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we tell the story of how a highly regarded independent filmmaker could have propelled herself onto the A-list of directors if she'd been able to make the hugely ambitious big-screen adaptation she was planning of a best-selling novel. The one that got away for episode 24 is Mira Nair's Shantaram. So, do you have any history of this, mate, with Mira Nair films or the book Shantaram? No, again, another thing that had no idea or any clue what was going on, so I had to do a bit of research into it. Cool. So, it, it's Mira Nair is a mostly independent filmmaker. She is Indian, although she has done some films in, in Hollywood and she has a house in Uganda now. Uh, she's been lived there for a long time and that's why she directed Queen of Catway, which was set in Uganda about the chess master kid. Oh, yeah. Uh, her three films that sort of stuck, stuck out for me as to why she'd be interested in making a film like this were Salam Bombay, which is the film Slumdog Millionaire stole most of its ideas from. It's about uh, uh, kids living in the slums in Bombay, now known as Mumbai. Uh, Mississippi Masala, which is a romantic comedy set in America about uh, Indian immigrants, uh, one of whom uh, is a, a young woman who falls in love with Denzel Washington. Uh, and Monsoon Wedding, which tells the story of a massive Indian wedding back in Bombay and all the different kind of social stratas that are involved in it, all the events, all the family stories that build up to it. Um, and in each of those, you can see why someone like her would be interested in the story of a book like Shantaram. Uh this would have been next level for her. She's a successful director. She works regularly. Her films are, you know, seen and reviewed, you know, well. But, you know, she doesn't make blockbusters. Do you know what I mean? Um, Shantaram <clears throat> is a novel by Gregory David Roberts. And he's a, it's a highly autobiographical novel and inspired by events in his own life, in what a life he's had. He was a, I think he was, plans to become a writer or an academic in his native Australia. But he had a very turbulent early life. In his early 20s, he, he became a heroin addict. Uh, he, his marriage broke down. And he, lost, he lost custody of his child. Uh, and I think his heroin addiction either caused that or was caused by that. To feed his habit, he became a bank robber. He was known as the gentleman bandit because he, he, um, people found out later that his gun wasn't even real. It was a toy gun. Uh, he would be very polite because he thought that would keep everybody calm in the bank that he was robbing. He would hold the gun, but he'd be very polite, be very calm, be very kind of gentle in the way he spoke to them, take the money and go. Uh, he was inevitably caught. He was locked up in a very brutal Australian prison and escaped, climbed over the wall and escaped to India. Uh, for, he lived for 10 years in India, getting mixed up with a wide range of people. And I'm, 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 I'm describing the life of Gregory David Roberts, but I'm actually describing the plot of his, of his novel now, because this is what happens to the main character in his novel. Huh. He gets mixed up with a wide range of people from uh, like foreign black marketeers, local slum dwellers, slum dwellers Bombay, Bombay gangsters. He ends up running a free clinic for the poor in the Bombay slum because he's got a, a big, he's got a, a, a first aid kit and he helps some of them. So he says, well, you'll be our doctor now because they don't have a doctor. Um, so they scrape together medical supplies and he treats people as best he can for stuff that they can't go to the hospital for. Um, he became an extra in Bollywood films. He worked for various kind of organized crime groups in Bombay, dealing in false passports and counterfeit money. He got calls up in gun running in Afghanistan, where he was uh, shot, shot and wounded. This is all between 1980 and 1990. He eventually left India because things were getting too hot for him, and he ended up being a singer in a rock band over there. Uh, he was eventually recaptured by Interpol. He returned to finish his sentence in Australia. We're back to the real life of Gregory David Roberts now, where he began writing a novel based on his experiences, which became Shantaram. He had to start on two, had to restart twice, because prison guards destroyed his manuscript twice, and he had to start again. Oh, 
So hell of a life. Um, when this book came out, it was very popular. It came out in about 2003. It was very, uh, you know, lots of people said, oh, I'd love to publish this book. Russell Crowe was the first person to publicly express an interest in starring in it, but I don't think anything ever came of that. He just went, oh, I'd love to do that. Uh, in 2004, Warner Brothers bought the rights, paid quite a lot of money for it, uh, and Johnny Depp was set to star. Johnny Depp loved this book, and he wanted to play the main character, even though he's not very much like the main character he wanted to play in. Um, and at that time, having Johnny Depp in a movie, this is the 2000s, Pirates of the Caribbean, a huge film, so he was bankable enough to make this happen. They originally had Peter Weir um, uh, direct, to direct it, but he uh, he left because he couldn't agree with the producers. Uh, in the mid to late 2000s, Mira Nea claimed the script. Uh, she said she was going to do it. Um, and a couple of times it looked like it was ready to go. Um, and I think there's a couple of challenges, the reason that, that this didn't get made. Uh, one was fitting it in with the busy schedule of Johnny Depp was very difficult because he's making a ton of films at the time. Um, but also they have a real challenge with the script. Trying to get the script to work is really difficult. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the book is over 900 pages long. So it's the length That's of something fair. like Count of Monte Cristo. And there are 300-page books that they had to leave a shitload out to make into a film. And a lot of people said, oh, you could probably have done with making a series of that instead. So 900-page, it's it's a suicide mission trying to, trying to write a, a film of that. I don't know if they were planning on maybe doing two or three different films based on the story. Let's start with the start of it and the go on. There's also a problem with the story. I mean, it's, it's got a weird tone. The writer is now 70 years old and he's been through all these experiences himself and he sorted himself out after all this and he's older and wiser. And when he's writing a book, he can't help while narrating the story, inserting the thoughts and views of his older, white, white, older wiser self into it. And he stops and he says things like, oh yes, I would come to know in later years that this was very spiritually important to me what was happening there. And it comes across a bit smug and it kind of breaks you out of the, the story. And the other problem is he goes into every aspect of the story in real great detail. Every car journey, every meeting, everything else is really detailed. And I think there was a lot to just kind of carve out to try and get a film out of this. Do you know what I mean? And um, the thing, that, I, mean, I, I mean, I read the book and it, it, the thing that would put me off is that it's this part of the novel that kind of appeals to smug trust fund twats who've been backpacking to Asia in their gap year, and they think this novel encapsulates their experience. And there's something about that. It's not the fault the guy wrote the book, but there's just something about this book that I've got a bit of a an edge with, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And I think Johnny Depp, he's done a couple of characters like this, like the, like the character who played in Blow and a couple of other people like that. He, and Hunter S. Thompson as well, he clearly idolises the main character. And I don't know how objective he would have been in playing him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to give an honest performance when you absolutely idolise that person. Yeah. Whereas that person had not, he had a massive like he had a incredible story, but he also probably did some nasty things. Yeah. So it's hard to get the kind of gravity of that situation if the person playing him absolutely adores him and loves the character. You see, because it, he's obviously he's been a heroin addict and a bank robber, and then you know, you see, he's it, also it, gone on this amazing journey to to India and escaping prison and all that kind of thing. So yeah. It, I think I think you can be that I think you you can be that guy at the end of the story, but you can't be that guy all the way through it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You have to watch yeah, yeah, that yeah. character develop. The other thing structurally is that key, key storylines in this are presented in like big chunks. This happens, you know. He's in the, he's he's living in the slum and he's 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 helping people, or he's getting to know these black marketeers. There's a whole scene where the local gangster you know asks him to look after a kid and teach him English, and he gets quite close. And these are these like big story chunks in their own in their own 
are in right. And then it switches and it becomes about some mysterious character called Sapna who's killing rich people in Bombay because of the way the poor are mistreated. And it's quite a lurching tone from incident to incident. I think you need to tell those stories in parallel if you're going to tell a story. Otherwise, you're going, I thought I was watching a story about life in the Indian slums. Now I'm watching an action thriller about gun running in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I think a lot of those problems could be resolved with a good director and a good writer, except the fact you can't make a two-hour film out of it. And I think that's why this film failed. Yeah, it stalled it time and time again because they could not get the script right because it's 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 a killer. 900 pages, can't do it. Yeah, I mean, you'd struggle to make a three-season TV show out of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they had, they had another couple of goes. Johnny Depp was no longer going to play the main character. Joel Edgerton was courted to play the main guy, who I could oh, okay. I could see. I could see it. Yeah, Having yeah. read the book, I could see him, definitely see him doing it. Uh, Johnny Depp would be a producer. Um, but once again, it came to nothing and it fell apart. And it's I'd say it's a shame for Mira now because I, th- I think she's very happy with the career that she has had. But I think she genuinely saw this as an opportunity to to film Bombay on a much bigger scale than she'd ever done before. She, you watch her films and she special. knows... It's, sorry, it's called Mumbai now. Um, although I, I, I was reading up on this and it turns out the, the name change was was by Modi and his Indian nationalists and not everyone agrees with it. And some people insist on still calling it Bombay. I didn't know that. The things you find out when you do that. This oh, would have been an incredibly vivid story. And Mira Nair has this ability to, to get inside the energy of a city. And it would have been her chance to do something as big as Slumdog was for... Um, uh, Danny Boyle. Um, so it's a shame for her that that didn't happen, although I think she's continued to have a productive career, but I think her career would have gone on a very different path if she were able to direct this. Um, in a sense, it, I'm not sure how suitable Johnny Depp would have been for the role, but it would have been a hell of a good role for him to, to, to sink his teeth into if he had a chance to do it. Yeah. No, I, I do like Johnny Depp. I do. I, he is good at playing these types of characters. Like, He's really good at a, a biopic. I thought he was really yeah. good in that. What was it called? White Mass. Yeah, and Donny Brasco. Um, yeah. he's yeah, he, like, he's he's a terrific actor, and I think you know, it's slight physical because the the main character is kind of I, I see him as having slightly sandy coloured hair and being really tall and lanky. So Johnny Depp doesn't look like him, but they, they could have they could have got across that. It's hard to find tall lanky actors. That's true. I, mean, I was trying. I was trying. I was trying. Russell Crowe's quite stocky. Joel yeah. Edgerton's quite stocky. I, I I couldn't I couldn't picture an actor who could play him. Do you know what I mean? I was thinking, who's who's that physical size and shape? So that in itself wouldn't be a challenge. I think it could have been really good. Um, it definitely is more suited, like you say, it's more suited to a TV series. And interestingly, that is now what's happening. Uh, when Warner Brothers rights to the project lapsed in 2015, a couple of years later, the rights were acquired for a TV series, and it's going to be on Apple TV+. And they have been filming this, a 10-episode series. Um, they've had a number of false starts, partly because of COVID. Um, you can imagine the, the challenges of filming something as big as this with COVID filming restrictions. Um, they have announced again that they're delaying the, the, the airing of this series, so I don't know whether they've had some further production issues, but they are going to be making a, a TV uh, series of this, um, which I think would be worth watching. I think if they've cracked the nut of how the story should be presented and maybe don't do the whole, the whole try and do the whole story in one series, yeah. I think it could be good. Here's the downside. The main Indian gangster I like. There's a guy called Alexander Siddiq. You recognise him if you saw him. He's in things like he's in all sorts of things. He was in Syria and a bunch of other stuff. He's English, but of Indian, Indian ancestry. He's playing the main gangster. He's very good. But the main character, the heroine bank robber turned guy who lives in India, living that crazy life, is being played by Charlie Hunnam. 
I'm not sure I'm ready to see him attempt an Australian accent. He can't even do his own accent. I've said the exact same thing. I've said the exact same thing to my wife the other day. He's from Newcastle, can't do a Newcastle accent. Think, oh, he must be one of those ones who lived in Newcastle, but he went to like a posh school, so he's got that kind of general English accent. No, he doesn't have that either. He does. Charlie Hunnam doesn't have an accent. He, it's, honestly, I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of Charlie Hunnam. He's not quite in the Jared Leto um, uh, box of genuinely objectionable. But I'm. I'm not a fan of his. I like Charlie Hunnam. Right, I thought he was good in The Gentleman, and I quite enjoyed that King Arthur film, even though it was shit. But I like him. I just he just can't do accents. He's like Jason Statham. I also think I'm not sure if he's the sort of person that could carry a story like this completely on his shoulders, where it is there is so much on one character and their evolution over a decade. Um, but we'll see. I'm glad it, they've it, made it a series, though. It's it it doesn't work as a film. It, no. it it has to be a series. I mean, you know, the only the only you know the books of this length, you know, The Count of Monte Cristo is is slightly longer than this book, and they only got away with doing a couple of films of that. A because the main storyline can be condensed. And B, there's a lot of side plots that you could cut out, but it's still much better when they've done Count of Monte Cristo as a TV series to get all the story in. I don't see how you could justify this story as a... as a Because um, it's about, over many years, what he learns doing a lot of different shit in a lot of different settings. I just don't think a movie... I just don't see how you could... It, it, every every key plot would get about two minutes each and it would it, it wouldn't work. So... I think this is one that got away because it was never going to work as a film. But it is interesting that we are going to see something like what it what it would be, you know, what it would be like. It's worth mentioning Miranea. She's done some interesting films that are worth a look. Salam Bombay, Mississippi Masala, Monsoon Wedding and Queen of Catway especially. She's done a few other things as well. She's definitely worth a mention. She's an interesting director. Um, this story, though, um, is going to come out in another format. And when it comes out, eventually on Apple TV, we'll see how it turns out. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. Normally this is where we complain about the lack of originality in Hollywood with endless inferior new versions of classic older films. This month, however, we're doing something slightly different. The film we're discussing was very much hate-watched when it came out. It was critically pilloried and a commercial failure. But we're using it as an example of a remake that is in fact justified and well-made, had a critical reassessment, and is now seen as perhaps the best version of this story. The remake Hate Watch for episode 24 is the 1977 remake of this month's classic, The Wages of Fear. It's William Friedkin's Sorcerer. So James, this is a bit of a switcheroo. Fancy doing something a little bit different. Uh, quite often we do remakes that we just kind of pile into and and and, uh, and, and give a kicking to. I see this as, a, as an example of a good remake. It's certainly got a, a critical reassessment these days. It's had a long and winding sort of story to get to get where it is now. Um, I'm not sure what your history is of this with this film. Uh, again, because I hadn't seen Wages of Fear, I had to do like kind of some research on this. I did find it confusing that you said it was a remake of the film we'd watched. So when I read the research on the classics one, I was confused as to why it was called The Sorcerer. Yeah, we'll get into that. It's 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 an odd. I don't quite get why William Friedkin made the name change, um, but he did. Uh, his reasons for it are a bit odd. Um, it's really interesting. This film was a flop when it was released. It was critically hammered, and it's been marked down as the end of that period of the 70s when auteurs were indulged by the studios to make personal films on A-list budgets. 
Um, Peter Siskind wrote a highly influential book, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which was a, became a documentary film as well, which is very good. He highlights this film as the height of auto hubris. It's cost overruns. It ended up costing twice what the first Star Wars film cost, and it came out the same year. Friedkin insisted on going back on location to film close-ups that he could have done in the studio. Um, it was At the time, it was like, who does he think he is? That's why you can't do that stuff anymore. And all kind of saying, well, they shouldn't have made this film, really, was kind of the story. And it is interesting because he fought, he fell quite far. This was his next film after The Exorcist, which was a massive film and won Oscars. He pretty much had the right to do any film he wanted to make at this time. And exactly as you, as you, as you make out, mate, Sorcerer is quite an obscure and misleading title. People either stayed away because they didn't want to watch a supernatural horror by the guy who did The Exorcist. If it's about Sorcerer, that's not, you know. And people who did go to see it expecting that were pissed off because they saw an action film about trucks instead of a sorcerer. So... He has this kind of background. One of the trucks is called Sorcerer. They have like their names painted on the side. And he said that he had some kind of reasoning about how it's like the, it's it's about the Sorcerer is like almost like the way fate kind of plays with humans and just kills them off. But while I like this film, I think saw, calling it what he called it was a mistake because it, it didn't do the film any favours. Um, having, having said all that, it was fl- it was critically pilloried when it came out. You know, it was called Dire. It was called An Absolute Mess. Why on earth would you remake a classic film? Um, I think over time, it is now seen as one of his best films. And it's it's definitely had a critical kind of reevaluation. What did you think of it when you saw it, mate? Um, I don't know. I don't... I didn't like it as much as the original. I don't know. It's just because I saw the original first. Yeah. But the problem I did kind of have <clears> with it is that Freakin seemed like he was a bit of a fucking prick on this. Like to to his crew, it seems like he was just falling out with everyone. There is definitely some of that in the making of the film, yeah. Um, and it seems like there was a lot of issues. Um, although the critical reevaluation might be kind of a, a similar thing. Like I need to go and watch this again, maybe to kind of appreciate it. Because when we watch these features, I watch them all pretty much at the same time. Um, we're not all in a day, but like I, I'll watch Rages of Fear one day, and then the next day I'll watch The Sorcerer. So it's kind of a case of. Maybe the other one was just too fresh in my mind for me to fully appreciate. Well, the thing is, right? One. If if you're a if if you're a forty five to fifty five year old film critic in the nineteen seventies, right? You'll have grown up watching films in the fifties, and The Wages of Fear would be one of your favourite films. Yeah. And so you'd have watched Wages of Fear and loved it, and then some upstart from the seventies decides to do his own version of it. And I think a lot of people were ill disposed to him changing everything the way that he did. It's quite interesting because I'd watched Sorcerer before I watched Wages of Fear because. I only just got around to watching Wages of Fear, and I've seen Sorcerer a few times. So you're, it's quite an authentic reaction of yours to have seen the first film, liked it, and then when you watch the remake, you're like, well, what's this? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, I don't know. I don't... It wasn't terrible. For a remake, hate watch, it wasn't bad. William Friedkin is obviously talented. Um, he made the French connection. He is a good director. I just didn't really get on with what he was trying to do with this film. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the characters, he doubles down on how unsympathetic the characters are compared to the first film because the, the, the four, you actually see the backstories of the four characters who end up driving the trucks in this film. And one of them yeah. is a Palestinian terrorist who's on the run because he set off a bomb that killed a bunch of civilians. So that's, that's clearly not a sympathetic character. One of them is a French banker who is uh, on the run from charges of fraud for breaking the, uh, uh, you know, pretty much breaking the financial system in Paris. Uh uh, so, you know, again, not a sympathetic character, and this is all quite current, isn't it? Um, one of them is a, a, a hitman who uh, 
actually is there to kind of catch one of the other characters and and inveigles his way onto it. So you, you know you you know he's you know he's not a nice character because he murders people on behalf of gangsters. And the main actor Roy Scheider plays a getaway driver from a, a heist gang, a robbery gang in 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 uh, New York, whose whose last robbery, although he wasn't the shooter, um, they shot a priest, uh, uh, you know, and and robbed a church. So. And he's on the run from gangsters because the, the 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 church and the and the it was under the protection of a mafioso, and the priest was the brother of one of the mafiosos. So he's on the run, uh, but they've sent a hitman after him. So you've, as well as the um uh, as well as the story of getting the trucks across the jungle, you've got a hitman who's trying to kill Roy Scheider uh, in the truck. Uh, so none of these characters are people that you would immediately want to go and have a beer with. Um, yeah. There's also a bit of a language barrier because they do the French. Uh, the the hitman is from South America, the the Palestinian is obviously from you know from that part of the world, and the the, the banker is French, and they do their storylines first. So there's 16 minutes before anyone speaks any English in the film, which I, I'm, I'm I think is much more commonplace now, but it, it was a bit of a barrier for for American audiences back then. Um, yeah. I'll put my cards on the table. I absolutely love this film. It's one of my favorite. I, th- I think it's Freakin's best film. I think it's an absolutely amazing remake. Um, I t- but I do know that the film is very tough, and you know there are some quite obscure things in it. I, I, you don't immediately work out that hitman's there to kill Roy Scheider. Oh, okay, and that's part of the. You know, it, it's one of those films that doesn't explain everything because the main thing is to tell the story of the trucks. But I mean, I like the fact that they <clears throat> they gave you the backstories of the characters, but they still managed to get to the the bit where you're taking the trucks across the jungle a lot faster than Wages of Fear. I mean, it it, it I think it trims out all the things that I would have trimmed out from the first film. Um, and then the actual the actual setting is is mind blowing. It's really grimy. You know, it it looks you know it's a film in South America, so it looks like it. That looks like a, a, a an impoverished South American village. Um, the you know the the initial scenes: a mob hit, a terror attack. Those shot gunshots fired in the French scene. So it's even in the first twenty minutes, you're like, bloody hell, this is pretty serious stuff. It's it's it's, it's I think it's got a lot of pace the way it kind of tells the story. I like the little details. There's a bride with a black eye at the wedding in the church. Did you notice that? Yes. There's a yes. Ga- there's a gangster who looks like late seventies Graham Sunes, which amused me. Um. Generally speaking, I just <clears throat> I thought that the film shot the scenes better, um, and I think that's just because things had moved on. A lot of the scenes involve there's a close up of the driver, and then there's a close up of the nitroglycerin jiggling in the truck, and there's a close up of the car tire nearly hitting a pothole. And I think it ratchets up the tension seriously, seriously, seriously all the way through. Um, there's a couple of new scene. One scene is done differently where they have to blow up the boulder, and I thought that was done with a lot of um that that was done really sort of powerfully there's a scene where they got across a a, a rickety bridge in a in a rainstorm which is one of the most intense scenes that's ever been filmed um and the 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 ending's even more downbeat than the ending in the first film i don't want to spoil either ending they're both kind of interesting the way that they end the film um so i thought i was being hauled over the coals while i was watching this film i thought the sheer intensity i felt much more like i was in the truck about you know feeling the same intensity as as the uh as the villains, and I thought shooting on location with the you know the rain and the grime and everything. I, I mean, I thought it was really really intensely done. I, I you know I have to say I like this better than the original, but I have to say I didn't see the original first, so I totally understand why you having seen the original prefer that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, I think the problem I have is that I always find it a bit lazy when someone tries to remake a film without good reason. Yeah. So 
Well, look, that's, that, example, that, that's, no, that's the so, ethos of this entire podcast. So yeah, how can well, I complain I mean, about that? So, well, no, so obviously the first Suicide Squad film was shit. So James Gunn wanted to do it justice. So did a good job of the second one. So, you know, that's where that's where I feel like a remix yeah, justified. Yeah, I get where you're Wages from. of Fear was good on its own. And it's not like it's necessarily a bad film. I just didn't really... The shots are a bit different, but if you're not going to do anything different with the film, then you know I don't really see the point in it. Yeah, you see, I mean, I get where you're coming from. And all of those principles are key principles for me as to whether I think a remake is justified. So if you've come to that conclusion, I, I can't possibly complain. For me, I felt that this, this remake came into the category of things like Scarface and The Thing, where the original films were very good, but they were very good for their time. And there's more you can do with the story now that you can film a, 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 a story set in Central America can be filmed in Central America and the intensity of the, of the shooting and, and the, uh, the action and everything else. Um, and I, and I felt the, I felt the way in which they gave you the backstory of the characters is actually very current, a terrorist on the run, a banker who's, you know, committed fraud and has had to abandon his comfortable family life, you know, a, a cartel hitman, uh, uh, you know, and a, a you know a getaway driver for an American crime gang. That's a that's a perennial storyline. I just thought, you know, you watch it now, and it's still like it's still up to the minute, and the way the it, you you actually see, you know, in the early scenes how the oil company is exploiting the local workers, and the the way that it kind of works. I love the soundtrack. I love the the sound design. I think it's a really really intense experience, even more intense than the first film. So um while i cannot possibly fault the principles that you're that you're adhering to in 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 judging this this remake i felt this was i felt this was justified but um you know for me i'm i'm glad, I'm glad we've done something you know different with the with, with the the format this time because you know not not every some some remakes just deserve a kicking i thought this remake deserved a genuine discussion um i think we've got a again you said you didn't hate it um i think I think we've been able to kind of illustrate the experience that this film had when it came out. I think I represent the people who, who love the film and, you know, wish that it had more success at the time. And it did mark the end of an era. This was, you know, you didn't get many auteur films after this. You know, Scorsese did Raging Bull and Coppola did Apocalypse Now, and that's about it. So it's a really interesting time in Hollywood. This marked the beginning of the end for, like, the, the 70s auteur. Um, but for you, I mean, it sounds like you, you didn't hate it, but you still prefer the original. Yeah, I think... You, that film was okay as it was. So. Yeah, it's fair enough. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now. We hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we will be taking on the big conversation, which this month features our review of the 2022 Academy Awards. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side. What are you barking at? Shut up, you fat dick. <laughs> no, nobody chat the door. What are you barking at? <laughs>